Hello, all you Peter King podcast listeners. In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little bit more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash Peter King. Podsurvey.com slash Peter King. And take a quick anonymous survey that'll help us get to know you better. That way we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed this quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, podsurvey.com slash Peter King. Thanks for your help. Hello, I'm Peter King. Welcome to the MMQB podcast with Peter King, where I take you inside the minds of the biggest influencers in the NFL. This week, a newsy podcast. We'll have investigative reporter Don Van Natta to talk about Roger Goodell's future as commissioner of the NFL. And we'll also have, from Pro Football Focus, Steve Palazzolo, who's a draft expert. He's going to tell you why the 2018 draft class at quarterback is starting to look a little bit depressing. But first, how about that trading deadline? Incredible. In fact, you know, so much action at the trading deadline that Connor Orr of the MMQB went back and looked up every single uh, trading deadline day two, three leading up to it to see how this one ranked, where there were six trades on the weekend of the trading deadline. And he found that this was the busiest uh, trading deadline weekend of the salary cap era. That includes 24 seasons. So you're not imagining things if you thought that, boy, that was a really busy, kind of crazy trading deadline time. And not only just in terms of volume, but I would say five of the trades were really interesting with either Pro Bowl players or players of significance. You know, uh, and I think one of the things that happened at this trading deadline is that it's not only two weeks later uh, in the last three years of a trading deadline. They moved it back to try to encourage more teams to trade. But I also think that one of the things that's happened is that Young general managers, rookie general managers, John Lynch in San Francisco, pulled off the huge trade, getting their quarterback of the future, Jimmy Garoppolo from New England, in a shocking trade for a second-round pick. And then uh, Buffalo's rookie general manager, Brandon Bean, who's been one of the most active GMs in the league since he took over in May, made two trades, trading away Marcel Darius to the Jacksonville Jaguars, and then trading to acquire uh, Kelvin Benjamin, the wide receiver from Carolina. And I think one of the things that this showed is that these teams with the rookie general managers are not necessarily bound to the constrictions of the past. They do not necessarily believe that it's very smart to hold on to players that you think you might cut or get rid of in the offseason, even though you might take some criticism. You know, Marcel Darius, you know, former high first-round pick for Buffalo, 
and all that Buffalo got was a six for him. But I think the Bills knew that, hey, listen, we're probably going to cut this guy in the offseason or try to dump him in the offseason. So let's get something for him and take the cap hit now, take our medicine. Uh, and, and that's exactly what they did. But I, I want to say a few words about this trade of Jimmy Garoppolo from New England to San Francisco. First of all, for the 49ers, I think this is a fantastic trade. Jimmy Garoppolo has only played, in essence, uh, a game and a half in you know of real football. Remember at the beginning of 2016 when Tom Brady was suspended, um, Garoppolo led the Patriots in Arizona to an opening week victory over the Cardinals 23-21. The next week, he threw three touchdown passes in the first half and had the Patriots ahead of Miami 21-0 and then suffered an injury that knocked him out for a couple of weeks. And then when Brady came back, it was Brady's job, obviously. But I think that Garoppolo has shown enough both in practice with New England and in that very short trial to become a very hot commodity around the NFL. And the one thing I I would say from, and so I like the fact that that San Francisco trades uh, for Garoppolo and only has to give up uh, the pick that'll be about the 35th pick in the draft in 2018. So, I don't like this trade for New, from New England's standpoint for a very simple reason. Tom Brady's 40, and although he's a freakazoid in terms of how healthy he is and how he takes care of himself, and I do expect him to make him through make it through the year uninjured. But let's let's you know face facts. Tom Brady, 40 years old. They've got eight more games to play. Five of the next six games for New England coming off their bye this week are on the road, and they play Pittsburgh on the road, Miami a tough defense on the road, Denver very tough defense on the road. They play Oakland uh, in Mexico City in what will be an emotional game before 108,000 people down in Mexico. But I, 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 I only say that I would not have made this trade if I were New England because if somehow, someway Tom Brady gets hurt, You ask the players who Jimmy Garoppolo has had to practice against for the last three-plus years in New England, and they will tell you that Garoppolo is going to be a very good NFL starter when he gets the chance. So to me, I think the Patriots should have hung on to him and taken a compensatory third-round pick late in the third round in 2019 instead of the high second-round pick in 2018. But... As one general manager in the league told me on Tuesday as I was calling around after the trading deadline ended, he goes, you know, as usual, Bill Belichick's going to land on his feet. I don't expect Brady to get hurt. And so he'll end up looking smart for getting getting a second-round pick for a guy he was going to get rid of anyway. I, I totally agree. If Brady stays healthy, but if Brady gets hurt, this trade is going to look terrible for the New England Patriots. And now my interview with Don Van Natta. Back on the MMQB podcast with Peter King, joined by Don Van Natta, who is an ESPN senior writer, also writes for ESPN.com. Formerly with the New York Times, was an investigative reporter there and has done a really good piece along with Seth Wickersham 
in ESPN the magazine, the one that's currently out, um, that that basically takes pulls the curtain back from uh, the recent NFL meetings in New York, where uh, there turned out to be actually there there were two meetings there. One, there was a meeting between uh, selected owners and players before the general meeting began that the the meeting between owners and players took place at the league office and then uh there was a regularly scheduled meeting uh an owners meeting um at a hotel in New York City um but but I I I'm I'm having Don on today because he and Seth Wickersham wrote an absolutely tremendous and very revealing story about some of the inner workings and, more importantly, the discord, the current discord between owners uh, and the league office. Uh, and, and also this story was the, uh, was the genesis of uh, probably the, <laughs> the quote that is going to uh, basically scar uh, Bob McNair's career as the founder and owner of the Houston Texans, uh, in which he, uh, in a meeting, in, in one of these meetings, uh, was quoted as saying, uh, which he has not denied, uh, he was quoted as saying, uh, you know, it's like we are uh, letting the inmates run the prison. And so uh, I wanted to have Don on today and this week to basically discuss what's going on in the NFL right now, because it's a time of uh, it, it's a time of, I'd say, to put it mildly, some some great consternation in the league among owners and in the league office, because there are so many issues at hand. Uh, the primary one of which now is the issue over trying to find a solution over the national anthem and what the NFL should do, um, you know, about players when they don't stand for the anthem. So anyway, Don, that's a little, uh, uh, you know, a little preamble toward our conversation, but I appreciate you joining me on the podcast. Thanks, Peter. It's so great to be with you. I appreciate it. Sure. Um, You know, first of all, I I, I just want to say just in general, the stories I really love uh, the stories I love to read are the kind of stories that you do, often in concert with Seth. You've combined to do some really terrific work around the NFL. And I, I like them because uh, they're true TikTok-type stories. They're not—you uh, could very easily have taken—and I asked Seth this question over the weekend. Why didn't you take that McNair quote— and pull it out and lead your story with it. And Seth basically said because it was this story was going to be told in chronological order and it was very well told in chronological order. But just just for people who whether they've read the story or whether they have not read the story, this is the kind of journalism that then trust me, I know. I read a story like this and there's 10 things that I say, "Wow, I did not know that." And and so tell me the degree of difficulty in doing these stories, which you've done for so long in your career. They're difficult. 
They're, they are. They're very challenging. Um, but when you get the information and you're able to bring readers into these rooms, these behind closed doors rooms, as Seth and I attempt to do with these stories, nothing is more gratifying. And it's been a real pleasure to work with Seth. Uh, Seth has developed into an outstanding investigative reporter himself, uh, well-sourced, a terrific writer, great year. And we set out on this story, Peter, as we have in the previous stories when we went to New York for the owners' meetings two weeks ago, to really bring readers behind the scenes, to show at this sort of historic moment for the league. And it really is a historic moment, as you know. It, the league is in crisis, and it's, that's not an overstatement. Um, it, it, all of its business metrics are going south. Ratings continue to be down. Uh, merchandise sales are down. All of the metrics around the league are down. Uh, the owners are concerned. And this national anthem controversy that was ignited by President Trump on September 22nd has really uh, hurt the game. It's hurt the brand and it's hurt the game. And the owners, uh, the players, and the commissioner have really struggled to try to resolve it. And these two days of meetings in New York were a sort of seminal moment for the league, and, and Seth and I set out to really try to explain that. And the best way to explain it, we feel, is in TikTok fashion, in narrative fashion, where the story begins when the meetings begin, ends when they end, and you really try um, to bring people into those rooms. And, and the way I like to put it, and it's a little bit crude, is there's like little bombs going off in the story throughout. And, you know, we made the decision, there's no way we were going to put that McNair quote at the top. I think it's in actually the last quarter of the story when that quote actually appears, um, because that is in the timeline when it happens. And, and those stories seem to resonate the most with readers. You know what I, I find interesting about this whole story right now um, is the, uh, the disconnect be- between some owners and quite frankly, some people in the league office, Troy Vincent, for instance, um, and the players. And I want to read a, a very quick passage um, in this and talk to you about this, because I think this shows the difference, quite frankly, between people like Troy Vincent and even his boss, Roger Goodell. Roger Goodell, in my opinion, recognized right away that if he attempted to force players to stand— then instead of having uh, all players, instead of having 18 to 20 per week that either A, uh, knelt during the anthem, sat during the anthem, or, or were inside the locker room during the anthem, uh, he would have 300 uh, because players just do not want to be told uh, when they believe this is a, uh, an inalienable human right of theirs. And we could discuss, I'm sure that there are going to be a lot of people listening to it, hey, I can't do this at my business. They shouldn't be able to do it in their place of work either. And we could talk about that, and we may. But I, I do want to get to, to this one thing and, and just ask you about, about this. And to me, this really struck home with what exactly is the issue between a lot of people in the league, executives, owners, and the rank and file. NFL executive Troy Vincent, who cared deeply about the players' concerns but had little patience for the protests, 
called San Francisco 49ers GM John Lynch the Saturday before the meeting. He told them that if he told him that if safety Eric Reed, one of the most ardent protesters, knelt the next day, he shouldn't bother to show up at the players only meeting because no one would take him seriously, according to people briefed on the call. Reed knelt anyway, and he intended to show up. So I just simply say, you know, I, I, I mean, Eric Reed is the the heir to Colin Kaepernick, and although I believe, and I don't just believe, it's it's a fact that some of the uh, uh, some of the the players now who are in the uh, you know the camp of say Malcolm Jenkins and Anquan Bolden, you know, who who basically kind of took over the protest for Colin Kaepernick when he didn't get a job in the NFL this year, but also were protesting for different things and different reasons with different goals than Kaepernick had. But but essentially Eric Reed is a buddy of Kaepernick's. They were on the same team together last year. He knelt with Kaepernick consistently during the year. And I just find it, uh, honestly, tone deaf, to put it mildly, uh, that Troy Vincent would think, well, you know, don't tell him not even to show up if he's going to kneel. It's just, I just think it's it shows almost a clueless Joe Jackson quality to Troy, Troy Vincent. I completely agree, uh, and 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 actually, Peter, that anecdote has really not gotten much attention because you know all the attention has been on the McNair quote. But I agree, it's tone deaf on the part of Troy Vincent. It's counterproductive. Troy Vincent has been the person in the league office who has been the liaison with the Players Coalition, uh, this group that's really led by Malcolm Jenkins among players who've had meetings have had conference calls with Roger Goodell and, and with Troy himself uh, since last year. It's really picked up uh, this summer, I've been told. But to say that to Eric Reed, and as you say, you know, who has that connection to Kaepernick, it, it, what it does is it fosters a distrust uh, that the commissioner, the owners, and the players are all hoping they can get past if they're going to solve this problem together. If there's going to be a true partnership, you can't have those kind of mandates coming from somebody in the league office whose job it is is to reach out uh, and cultivate the players, get them to trust the, the efforts of the league office in moving forward and trying to come up with a solution. There will be people who listen to this, Don, who will ask this question. Why can't Goodell just simply force the players to stand up? Well, uh, I think if he were only doing this for business purposes, that's what he would do. Uh, but, you know, people forget this about Roger Goodell. And I, what I heard what was interesting, and we reflect this in the story, Seth and I, is that Goodell here really was siding with the players. The players were impressed. You know, some players, when you really talk to them and they're honest about their assessment of Goodell, they call him a puppet. It's a word you hear often uh, about from players about Goodell, that he's a puppet of these billionaire owners, these ruthless billionaire owners. But in these meetings in New York, that particularly the players' owners' meeting, Goodell was uh, emphasizing to the owners to listen to the players. The players really had the floor, had a forum. There was an open discussion. 
And he is resisting it because I think you said it in part. Part of why he's doing it is because simply if there is a mandate, as Jerry Jones and Bob McNair and Dan Snyder want, then you will have a mutiny on your hands among hundreds of players, and it will be a much worse problem. That's, that's how Goodell sees it. Um, but there are so many fans, of course, though, who back the Jerry Jones view. Uh, you know, Jerry Jones is the only owner, as you know, Peter, who said that if a Dallas Cowboys player kneels during the playing of the National Anthem, that player is going to stay on the bench and not play in the game. It's the only owner who has said that. That played really well in North Texas and throughout much of America's heartland. Um, but Goodell, interestingly here, is going against Jerry Jones. Uh, the most powerful owner who often gets his way. And that's one of the things that really struck Seth and me in our reporting, and, I, and we tried to reflect in the telling of this story, that, Rod, that Jerry Jones, who more often than not, I mean, we saw it with the franchise moves um, when the Rams moved to Los Angeles. It was really engineered by Jerry Jones. Jerry Jones' visionary leadership on the business side is well-respected. He wins almost all of these fights. But this one, he lost. He wanted the anthem mandate and wasn't able to get it. What, before these meetings started, this was two weeks ago in New York, I had a very good ownership source who's been in the league for a long time say to me, I think you're going to have some really unhappy people on the ownership side if Roger Goodell does not have um, you know, the favors, the chips he can call in to make this problem go away. And much of that was because they, I think, owners feel like, okay, television advertisers are sort of biding their time and sitting on the sidelines, but clearly are unhappy uh, to be getting 10,000 phone calls, the major advertisers, you know, and in the days after Sunday games, when their products are advertised and you look at the sidelines, at least until the networks stop showing the national anthem. But when you look at, when you look at the sidelines and you would see uh, people kneeling and, and uh, this, this ownership source said, you know, Roger has got to call in his chips. He's got to call in these favors and he's got to get this done. And I said, it's never going to happen. I mean, he can't, he has zero, favors to call in from D. Smith, the executive director of the Players Association, and the players in general don't trust him and don't like him. So he doesn't he can't do this. But but I but that is what I heard. And I think I think that owners felt that he uh you know he really needed to try this. Is this anything that you heard or is this anything that you felt was playing out over the two days of meetings? Yes, Peter. I, I, I think that, you know, Roger Goodell had a choice. Uh, it, it was not an easy one. It was not a good one. Um, he could have tried to um, help Jerry Jones muscle through this, this anthem protest, um, and, but he would need a lot of chips, and he would need a lot of favors. And as you said, he would need the goodwill of DeMora Smith, uh, the head of the NFLPA, which he doesn't have. Uh, so, he, so he didn't really have the tools to do what Jerry Jones wanted him to do. So in, in some ways, he really had no choice but to try this much more difficult 
solution in the sense of it's a it's a lengthy solution. It's a risky solution of this three pronged plan that was proposed by some marketing people in the league office the week before the league meetings of working with the players uh, on Capitol Hill in state houses around the country to lobby for criminal justice reform legislation and for uh, really fighting the fight on a local level through the clubs and also using the NFL platform uh, to try to make uh, this, this case. Um, that's a long, drawn-out fight um, that depends on a fragile peace between the players and the owners that Roger Goodell is going to have to try to maintain. And, you know, we say in the story that this crisis requires leadership. It requires diplomacy, uh, both on the part of Roger Goodell primarily, uh, but it also is going to require a little bit of luck. So that is sort of how it played out, and I think what you heard from your ownership source is right. And uh, what I was going to say earlier, Peter, that I want your, your listeners to hear, because I think this is interesting. You know, Roger Goodell, and I know you know this, he's the son of a, of a senator from New York who was a principled man who um, ended up losing his Senate seat and resigning in principle over a fight with President Nixon uh, when uh, Charles Goodell, Roger Goodell's father, um, decided that uh, he was no longer going to support the Vietnam War. I would not be surprised if the pressure does get turned up on, on Roger by the more hardline owners that this is how Roger sees this fight. If he decides to stay with the players, this is a principled fight like his father fought. And I would not be surprised to see that he would actually fight it to the end and actually go out in a blaze of sort of principled glory if he feels as if he's being forced to do something against his own conscience. It'll be history repeating itself in the Goodell family. This is the MMQB podcast. Bridgegate was a scandal that helped take down the most popular governor in America. It caused gridlock traffic on the biggest bridge in the United States. After years of investigations, the trial has ended, and Governor Chris Christie is a free man. He never even went to court. But did he get away with the worst kind of political retribution? Chris Christie was set on changing the New Jersey narrative as the Soprano State. But in the end, he may have only made it worse. Everybody, Dwayne Johnson here to tell you about a new documentary podcast series titled What Really Happened? Narrated by award-winning documentary filmmaker... Andrew Jenks in coordination with our company, Seven Bucks Productions. This series will look deep into the unknown sides of historic news stories and then ask, what really happened? The long list of people involved in Bridgegate all have nicknames. Phony Baroni, The Road Warrior, Mr. Wolf, and of course, The Gov. What parts did they all play? Was the mastermind the same guy that took down stats for Christie's high school baseball team? Go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your shows to listen to what really happened. Available now. In need of great talent for your business, but short on time? You don't have to get lost in a huge stack of resumes to find your perfect hire. You just need the right tools. Smarter tools. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click. So you can rest easy knowing your job is being seen by the right candidates. Then ZipRecruiter puts its smart matching technology to work, actively notifying qualified candidates about your job within minutes of posting, so you receive the best possible matches. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. 
Unlike other hiring sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on the right candidates finding you. It finds them. You can even get a head start on the interview process by adding screening questions to your job post to help identify the most qualified candidates. So you don't have to waste time sorting through a stack of resumes to find the perfect fit. No wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. An easy-to-use ZipRecruiter dashboard lets you manage your hiring process from start to finish, all in one place. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by growing businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, it's free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash MMQB. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash MMQB. One more time. Hey, folks, it is free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash MMQB. I'm with Don Van Natta. He and Seth Wickersham of ESPN, the magazine, uh, wrote an excellent story detailing uh, not only the um, the play-by-play of some very contentious league meetings um, earlier this month in uh, New York, but he also sort of set the stage, they set the stage, uh, for a continuing story, which um, your peers, Adam Schefter and Chris Mortensen, on ESPN uh, this past weekend, wrote about that there was a 17-owner conference call held a week ago, uh, led presumably by Jerry Jones. Um, in, in the wake of this, by the way, I've, I've had um, one person who's uh, a very highly placed uh, person in NFL ownership say that you know, he's been in the league for a long time and uh, has never seen Jerry Jones as adamant about something in his life. Uh, and he, he meant both that uh, they've got to get a little bit of a lasso around Roger Goodell's uh, huge salary, uh, salary and benefits, you know, of his current contract extension offer is somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 to $35 million a year, uh, the offer. Um, But it's also about getting uh, a handle on the anthem cause. So I, I would... I would just ask you, as as we sit here right now, sort of looking at what's next, I heard that question re- repeated to me over the weekend on several occasions. You know, what do you, what do you think is going to happen next? And, Don, it's so interesting. I think so many owners around the league absolutely and simply do not know the answer to that question. Do you? No. And I had the same sense in talking to people this weekend and again today, uh, people don't know where we're headed from here. You know, the story that uh, Adam Schefter uh, and Mort did uh, was a great story, a great scoop. Um, I found it remarkable in some of the quotes in the story that, that only got some attention where people are, owners are actually saying about Roger Goodell, you know, we need a person that can solve problems. The implication is that Goodell is somebody who has created problems for the owners, going back to the Ray Rice 
a domestic violence scandal a few years ago, and that he's not perceived as a problem solver. I, I would think for Roger that that would be a a big signal from the owners. And remember, these are 17 owners that are not on the compensation committee led by Arthur Blank, He's right. the chairman, the Falcons owner. So for a bunch of owners who are not charged with dealing with Roger Goodell's next contract to get together, led by Jerry Jones, and sort of grumble about his performance and talk about what will happen with him in the next contract and presumably with his future, uh, you know, that is certainly not a vote of confidence that was signaled to, to Roger over the weekend, which I think is why there's so much uncertainty of where we head from here. And, of course, the anthem issue is going to be one, as I, as I indicated earlier, that is just not easily solved. I mean, this, this, this is going to extend into I the I think it's, season. you know what, I think it is, Don, honestly, I think it's unsolvable. And I don't mean to, I mean, look, uh, the, the negotiations with North Korea might be unsolvable. It sounds hilarious when you say that the anthem protest is unsolvable. But I'll tell you why it's unsolvable. Because Doug Baldwin, who's an incredibly respected player leader with the Seattle Seahawks, he has different priorities than Malcolm Jenkins and Anquan Bolden do. Uh, and they're extremely bright and very well-intentioned players. Uh, Anquan Bolden, recently retired player. But their intentions are different from Eric Reed's. And so you don't have a situation where you have, you know, to me, I think, I, I think what the players really need to do, they need to get 20 players together, Russell Okung, Eric Reed. Doug Baldwin, uh, Malcolm Jenkins, Anquan Bolden, uh, Demario Davis. You need to get uh, Chris Long. You need to get these players who are very, very well-respected and all of them well-intentioned and say, okay, the only way we're going to be able to go forward on this without throwing a Molotov cocktail at 345 Park Avenue, which, by the way, I think some would like to do, but I think it's going to be very, very difficult for them unless they do that. And I don't sense that there's any idea or any really motivation for these players to do that. No, I, I think that's right. And, and that's a great point. And there, there's factions among the players. There's factions among the owners. So that, that's the problem. They have a very difficult uh, crisis that they're, they're trying to manage. The, the business metrics are down. The brand is under attack in an unprecedented way by the President of the United States in a way that's resonating with millions of fans. Roger Goodell stands in the middle of that. It's his job. He's being paid 30 to $35 million a year. It's his job. He's well compensated to try to resolve it. But he's got these factions, even among the players and among his bosses, to try to manage. And when you say it's unsolvable, Peter, I, I believe that it really is. It's, it's going to be... The, the solution that was set up at the Conrad Hotel in New York City two weeks ago was really to kick the can down the road. When you really think about it, the rejection of the anthem mandate, the Jerry Jones-led uh, anthem mandate, was a decision, certainly. Uh, and it took a, a lot of guts, I believe, um, uh, uh, to, to do that. Because from a business standpoint, as I said earlier, that's the easy solution. Um, you're going to have players upset. There's going to be cost to it, but 
uh, that was rejected. But but what I was going to say is in kicking the can down the road, this is going to go on for months or even years. And the question is whether the owners are going to have the patience for that if they continue to see ratings suffering, if they continue to see these other business metrics go down. And, you know, Roger Goodell always has talked about his job being that he's the protector of the shield, as you know. It's that it's favorite phrase of his since he got the job in 2006. But he really is the shield for the owners. He, he serves as a shield to shield the criticism of them. And in this particular crisis, he's not done that. You know, Bob McNair has taken a ton of heat since Friday, since our story was posted. Roger Goodell's been silent about that. Even when McNair on Saturday says in that second apology that he wasn't referring to the players, he was referring to the league office. Well, that's an attack of Roger Goodell and Troy Vincent. And Goodell has not said a word about it. So somebody who's been a shield in this particular case, I don't think the owners are feeling as, as if he's done a very good job protecting them or protecting the business and the brand. And when you think of it that way, that's why he's in such perilous waters right now. Yeah, we could we could go on for three hours, and we probably will over uh, a beer at some point uh, fairly soon. But I, I would I'll finish by asking you this this final question two years from now is roger goodell the commissioner of the nfl if i had to bet on it right now this minute i would say no i would agree i I think the forces are too strong against it Uh, he's got a lot of money in the bank he may not just have the stomach for it uh, Who it's been would, 11 really? years. Who would? Yeah, it, yeah. <laughs> I mean, but, but really, Peter, it's been 11 years. Uh, he's taken a lot of arrows since 2014, a lot of arrows. And, and my understanding of it, people who know him, he hasn't been having a lot of fun either. And, you know, look. you. How could you have a lot of fun? How could you have a lot of fun that any time you appear in public, you get booed uh, like you're a mass murderer? I mean, it's it's I mean, you know, he jokes about it. He laughs about it. But you know what I thought was honestly just a really indicative moment in his life and in his uh, reign as commissioner. A couple of weeks ago, I was in Indianapolis on a Saturday afternoon. Peyton Manning was having a uh, Jim Irsay, the owner of the Colts, was unveiling a statue um, on the concourse outside Lucas Oil Stadium, and it was a classic Peyton Manning pose of a quarterback getting ready to throw the football. It was a really a beautiful statue, and so uh, a, a whole bunch of guests were there. It was probably fifteen thousand fans who just came out. Uh, basically, as a friend of mine who lives in Indianapolis said to me, we never got a chance to say goodbye to Peyton Manning. We really wanted to do that, and that's why there were so many people there. And so, you know, the mayor of Indianapolis was there. The old governor of Indianapolis was there. It was a just a very—David fe- Letterman was there. It was a very festive day, a lovely day. And when Roger Goodell stepped up to the, the podium to speak, to pay homage— uh, to Peyton Manning, I'd say 50% of the crowd lustily booed. And I said to myself, 
This is a guy who got up in Westchester County in, in New York on a Saturday morning, probably skipped his daughter's soccer game, uh, and, and you know, said, honey, I, I got to go to Indianapolis to do something for Peyton Manning. And I'm not saying, I'm not asking anybody to feel sorry for him. I'm not. This is part of the job. But it's not something he had to do at all. And he shows up. And to say 90 seconds of really nice things about Peyton Manning, and he gets the crap boot out of him. And I, I just I thought to myself, and I looked at a few people in the audience that day, NFL people, like front office people uh, who were all there. I mean, it was an amazing crowd. But I looked around, and they looked at me like, wow, did you hear that? I mean, it's beyond the point of no return for Roger Goodell, in my opinion, and that's one of the reasons why – it won't surprise me if one day he just wakes up and he uh, has Joe Lockhart issue a statement and say, I'm done. Me too, Peter. And you've known him so long. I want to ask you a quick question before we sign off. I mean, you've known him forever. Uh, and you know him, I think, among all of us in the press corps better than anybody. Um, why do you think – let me start it again. What do you think his legacy will be as a commissioner? Um, I think his number one legacy would be uh, that although he set out to um, although he set out to protect the shield, that he made a series of decisions that while he made these decisions because he honestly felt, legitimately honestly felt that they were in the best interests of the National Football League, that basically made so many people in the public and in ownership just spin around like tops in intense anger. You know, the Ray Rice decision, first two games, uh, you know, and then, you know, having to try to correct that. Uh, more decisions involving domestic violence that, uh, which is really, the whole domestic violence issue is such a difficult issue to referee. It really is. Um, but, you know, that... And then uh, the New England Patriots and the Deflate Gate story. Um, I think that will go down in history uh, as uh, killing an ant with a sledgehammer. And then, obviously, the, and, 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 yeah. and, and Peter also Spygate. I mean, for me, you right. know, we did this stuff, and I did that piece. But the first year with Spygate to do what he did there and destroy the evidence, uh, you know, for an owner who helped him get his job. Uh, I mean, there's a direct through line, uh, as we showed in that story in 2015, between Spygate and Deflategate, right. among the perception of owners um, as well. So, uh, but it's interesting that so much of this is on discipline, right? Because right. Tagliabue... That's why he's Tagliabue, he just... Yeah. The NFL has to get out of this business. They just yeah. do. They just... It isn't worth it. Paul Tagliabue, the greatest thing that he has said, either as a commissioner or as a former commissioner, is, you know, basically, you know, you just got to end these things. You know, all's well that ends. Not all's well that ends well. 
all's well that ends. Just finish them. You know, to drag on Tom Brady for, for as long as, as it did, and now Ezekiel Elliott, to have the investigation last as long as it did. And again, look, I'm not criticizing the investigation. I'm really not, because I'm not an investigator, and I don't know what they went through. But all I know is that this has hung over a franchise and hung over a league for way, way, way too long. And that's why the discipline, the appeals process, has to get out of the hands of the NFL, and it has to be in some third party who, some judge, who's never going to get booed because nobody's ever going to know who it is. Some faceless judge that the two sides agree to, and whatever he says, she says, that's it. It's over. And but Peter, the, Peter, the irony here is, as you know, when Roger Goodell came in, he came in in large part because he sold to the owners that he was going to be an enforcer right. of player discipline in a way that his successor, Paul Tagliabue, was not. And isn't it ironic that now, 11 years later, so many of the things you ticked off that are part of Goodell's legacy, mostly on the negative side of the ledger, are these overreaches, these oversteps. But I also think play, you're, you're, absolute, you're absolutely right, uh, Don, but I do think, and look, I realize that it won't happen, but I do think that so much of this, and, and look, you've, you've been around many more important things than, than, than football in your life. And the last thing I would say is that, you know, very often it takes a long time to write a legacy. It's one of the reasons why I love the fact that there's a five-year waiting period before you consider anybody for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Because after Kurt Warner retired, everybody said, oh, just he can walk in. What a story. And, you know, I mean, two, Super Bowls with two different teams and blah, and, and all this other stuff. And and after a while, you just sort of look at this. You take a deep breath. And look, I totally support Warner for the Hall of Fame, and I'm glad he's in. But after a while, you take a deep breath and said, well, wait a second. There's a five-year donut hole in the middle of his career. we got to consider that, too. We can't just say that. We can't just say it was all good. It wasn't all good. There was some crap. You know, and so, but, and that's why I say about Goodell, you know, let's, let's just wait and say, well, well, wait a second. He was charged with making the owner's money. And from 2006 uh, to 2017, the revenue in the NFL went from $6 billion to somewhere between 14 and $15 billion. And you can't eliminate that as part of his legacy. The owner said, make us money, and he made them a record amount of money. That's one thing. He did. There's, there's a lot of other things that should go on the plus side of his ledger, uh, which I certainly will, will recognize. But, uh, you know, there are some things on the negative side of his ledger, and it's almost like, why does a manager get fired sometimes? He gets fired because even though so many things in the course of a baseball season are not his fault, the record is. And when the record isn't good enough, you get whacked. That's all there is to it. That's the way life goes sometimes. It's not fair, but that's just the way it goes. And I would agree with you. I don't know that it'll happen in a year, but I think a couple of years from now, particularly if, particularly if, Jerry Jones continues to press the, this thing about we need to get a more reasonable salary. He needs to take a pay cut. If that happens... 
I think Roger Goodell could say sayonara, sayonara right now. I, I agree. I think that that I, I think that that could happen if he is able to persuade his fellow owners to do that. You know what's remarkable, Peter is, and I know you know we saw each other in Phoenix for the winter meetings. Jerry Jones planted this seed then. Remember, he brought up he did. Roger Goodell's compensation then. Now he was most angry. This is of course long before the anthem controversy reared its ugly head at the end of September of this year. But he was upset about the dragging of the feet of the league office and the investigators on the Ezekiel Elliott domestic violence case. And he raised it then and was banging the drum for a more incentive-based contract and for Roger Goodell to take a pay cut. So that's been hanging over Roger. To be fair to him, the most powerful owner, arguably, was way back in March in Phoenix at those winter meetings was, was discussing, you know, you're on a short leash. And then this controversy happens, which we both agree is probably unsolvable by anybody. Uh, so Roger Goodell's in a very, very tough spot right now. And if he loses the support of his, his really his core group of supporters, and I, you know, I put Mara in that group, Rooney, people like that, th- th- then he will be done. Don't you agree? I mean, he's, I he's got a number of, yeah. I mean, if, if, those, if those guys... You know, what I, him, you, know what, you know what has been really interesting? in the last week or so, and then I'm going to let you go, Don. But what has been really interesting in the last couple of weeks, even after, uh, even in the middle of Deflategate, even in the middle of Ray Rice, owner after owner after owner, Roger Goodell is a fine man. He's doing what he thinks is best. It's going to be choppy waters, but uh, I totally support the actions of the commissioner. I have not seen one owner, heard one owner say, I back Roger Goodell unconditionally. Nobody. Nobody. And You're right. I just, yep. it just feels like, it just feels like, um, like the day of reckoning is coming. But, you know, <laughs> this is another day, this is a podcast for another day, but I'll tell you one thing. I have absolutely no clue who the next commissioner is. None. Zero. And I think it is a really, really difficult job. It's a job unlike really almost any other job in corporate America. But I would, I, I'd would i love to, I'd love to uh, engage you one of these days on that. For sure. It, it, there's definitely not a very deep bench inside the league office. And when you look outside, uh, people don't have the institutional knowledge that Roger Goodell has. Roger, Roger Goodell's greatest asset, and you could maybe argue now maybe something that is his biggest liability, is the fact that the only job he's ever had in his life is working for the NFL. Don Van Natta of ESPN, the magazine, who along with Seth Wickersham wrote uh, a, a, a revealing story in the current issue of the magazine uh, about the turbulent times in the National Football League right now. It's my pleasure having you on the podcast this week. Thank you, Peter. Had a great time. Appreciate it. You're listening to the MMQB Podcast. They say in life there are no guarantees. They say there's no sure thing. Well, I'm here to tell you there might just be one exception. In 1924, Husky started making things for people who make things, and they did it with common sense. That meant adding function, never frills, 
and making tools that stood the test of time. 93 years later, Husky is still making quality-crafted, durable tools. Husky stands by their hand tools for life, so they gave their hand tools a lifetime warranty. Like the Husky Ratchet, with a 100-position ratcheting design and a 10% longer handle than standard ratchets, they do what other ratchets can't. Or the virtually unbreakable Husky Flashlight, with the ability to withstand a 30-foot drop and work in up to one meter of water submersion. Both are guaranteed for a lifetime, but built so you won't need it. Now that's a pretty sure thing. And a Husky, that's common sense. Husky, common sense tools since 1924, with hand tools guaranteed for a lifetime. Found only at the Home Depot. And now my conversation with Steve Palazzolo of Pro Football Focus. Back on the MMQB podcast with Peter King, I'm joined by Pro Football Focus senior analyst Steve Palazzolo to discuss the 2018 college quarterback draft crop. And the reason that I wanted to have Steve on, Steve, uh, I have great, great respect, not only for Steve, but for Pro Football Focus as a whole, because they do something that I simply do not do, particularly about the college game, and that is to watch tape exhaustively. They watch coaches' tape, and they break down uh, all of the college quarterbacks in preparation for the draft. And um, one of the reasons why I, I wanted to have Steve on is to discuss, you know, at the beginning of the year, I think there was this feeling that it was all set, that if Sam Darnold of USC came out, it was going to be maybe Sam Darnold, uh, Josh Rosen in some of UCLA uh, in, in some order. Uh, and then, you know, there were other quarterbacks involved, but but Pro Football Focus basically has had a different view of this, uh, which we'll get to in a moment, and a, I wouldn't say an anti-Darnold and Rosen view, but but uh, they they have liked other quarterbacks significantly uh, this fall as we now uh, get to about the 60% mark of the college season as we enter November. Steve, before we start, you have to tell our audience— I, I love your background. Um, you, you've got an incredible background, and, and one of the things that's really fun about you is that you once, not once, you several times as a minor league baseball pitcher uh, pitched to Buster Posey. And from your conversations with me over the last couple of years, you actually made Buster Posey. He was nothing until you started to throw to him, as you well know. But anyway, tell me a little bit about your baseball career. Yeah, I mean, since catcher's ERA is like the new rage, I mean, Buster had a zero ERA the, the months of July and August in 2009 thrown to me in AAA. So, I mean, you know, I pretty much got into the big leagues. Yeah, look, I, play, yeah, I played eight years in the minors, bounced around independent ball, was lucky enough that the Giants gave me a shot in AA and AAA and almost kind of knocking on the door to the big leagues. So that was a lot of fun. And uh, that kind of ran its course around 2011 and randomly reached out to PFF, who I was a huge fan of, uh, just using the data and using the information and uh, snagged a, a part-time job there and somehow made the transition from minor league pitcher to football analyst uh, smoother than I thought it would be. Um, who's the best 
hitter you've ever faced in your life? I'd say it was probably uh, Troy Gloss. He was on a rehab assignment in 09 when I was in AAA. And then uh, Carlos Gonzalez, too. Oh, Carlos. year. So, yeah. So he was, uh, I think he had a, blo- a bloop single. I've got to clarify that bloop single against me. So we didn't hit the. Who's the, what's the, uh, what's the best you ever were on the radar gun? So my buddy was a scout for the Diamondbacks. He claims that one of his uh, his colleagues with the D-backs had me at 95 for two pitches early in the 2009 season. But I'm more I'm more confident in saying 94. So I was about 90 to 94 in my heyday, but supposedly some 95 in there here and there. And uh, who's the best player you ever struck out? I don't. Oh, I don't know if I got anybody good. Maybe Alan Craig. Wow, Alan think, Craig. Yeah, Alan, That's Alan pretty Craig good. Had a couple of good big league years. Travis Buck. I think I got him as yeah. well. So some some average big league talent yeah. that I struck out. Did you know that uh, Buster Posey was going to be really good? Uh, yeah, I did. I, he it, it hit me more so when he was slumping. He got to AAA when we were there. I was there the whole season. He gets there mid season. He starts to slump, and there was this one game. He's 0 for four. And his fifth at bat, he took a walk, and it was—it looked like the simplest thing, but he was already slumping. He's hitting about 200, and he didn't press. Was the most impressive thing to me. The kid's got the weight of the world on his shoulders as far as expect, expectations. Trusted his own process, and just uh, before you know it, he was hitting 330 and, and ready to go to the big league. So kind of uh, reminds me now. Kind of yeah. reminds me now of Cody Bellinger. You know that. Yeah. You know, he starts this World Series over 13, and he's been ripping it up ever since. We're recording this on Monday uh, evening, and uh, so uh, it's, you know, game game six in the World Series will be in the books by the time you hear this. But, but I'll tell you one thing, and we'll get off this in a second, but I've always thought that one of the weirdest things in all of sports is how a great hitter can go over eighteen and then get six hits in eight plate appearances. It's just you know, oh, yeah. it's just it's the it's craziest thing, really. Yeah. And, and I'll name drop real quick here. Rich Hill was my off-season workout partner for two or three seasons back in the Boston area. So wow, unbelievable story watching him rejuvenate his career and just really become as good as people thought he was going to be back in his twenties when he stepped right in as an awesome rookie for the Cubs. Sort of a great example, in my opinion. I think what's so interesting about baseball is that everybody now thinks, well, you know, you got to be able to throw 96 or, or whatever. And, you know, Rich Hill and, and so many of these guys now, Charlie Morton, uh, so many of these guys, I just love watching pitchers. I loved watching Maddox play. And, uh, I, I, you know, hey, it's fun watching Scherzer too, but, you know, uh, but I, I think it's really uh, – I love watching pitchers paint. Um, but anyway. Yeah, I, many ways to get that job done. So um, I want to start off by, first of all, just saying that I think a lot of people know that Pro Football Focus has been in the NFL analyst business, uh, analyzing every snap of every player in every game and basically grading every player on every snap uh, since 2006. But you guys just recently have gotten into the college business. When and why? Yeah, I mean, it was just why is because Neil Hornsby, our founder, wants to do it all. And he has a vision. He had a vision for the NFL, had the vision for college. 
Uh, we started it in 2014. Uh, and we don't do anything small, so we went and did every single FBS game. So that's 870 or so games per year, uh, even when FBS schools are playing FCS schools. And it's just a different way of, of analyzing football and looking at data. And uh, it's been valuable for, you know, the NF- we work with college teams who take that data, use it in game planning, and then NFL teams who take that data uh, and use it every which way to, to, to scout these guys and, and project them for the future. So uh, working on our fourth full year of data now after starting in 2014. You're listening to the MMQB Podcast. State Farm knows that for football fans, your car and home are more than just stuff. They're some of your most valuable possessions. The things you've worked hard for and have made a lifetime of memories with. Whether it's the truck that gets you to every tailgate or the place where you watch your favorite team with your favorite people. But life can be a real tough opponent. That's why when it comes to finding the right home and auto insurance, you need a strong defense. A seasoned pro like State Farm. They understand it's more than just a car or a house. So why not give it the protection it deserves? It's just one more way State Farm is here to help life go right. See how they can help you by talking to a State Farm agent today. I'm with Steve Palazzolo of Pro Football Focus. Uh, his uh, NF, his uh, 2018 quarterback draft rankings uh, are up at Pro Football Focus. You really get a, uh, a charge out of them because they're kind of counterculture. And Steve, before we get to your current top five, I'll just say that there's two names that aren't on there that really are interesting to me. Sam Darnold of USC and Josh Rosen of UCLA. I'd like you to tell me why uh, Pro Football Focus is somewhat down on each of these two guys. Yeah, and it's just, you know, it's this year's numbers. It's this year's breakdown. We actually loved Darnold last year when he was a redshirt freshman, but you know, there is, there's no denying that he has struggled this year. And there was actually a point earlier in the season where he had a ton of interceptions. And I was actually trying to defend him saying, you know what, he's, uh, he's had some interceptions, bad luck. It's not that bad. And it, things kind of got worse right around the Washington State game. And he's had three or four games between uh, throwing passes into coverage, misreading coverage, inaccurate passes, uh, and fumbles. He's had some really bad fumbles over these last four weeks. Those things get heavily downgraded in our system. So, uh, just from a pure grade and production standpoint, Darnold has struggled. He had uh, four or five dropped interceptions against Oregon State, a game where statistically he looked much better. So I think Darnold, uh, I still like him overall as a prospect. I still think he has a lot of potential. He can get uh, to the level that I think people wanted from him. He's just hit this uh, major slump. And when I look at Josh Rosen across town, you know he's always had the talent, certainly has NFL talent, and he throws the ball well, and he looks good in the pocket, and all the things – the NFL is looking for, but for such a talented kid, he's never truly dominated on the field. He's had some good seasons. Um, there's actually a lot of Jameis Winston type of qualities to his game. There's a lot of boom or bust where he'll he'll make an NFL throw and then he'll make uh, you know a, a terrible decision, misread into coverage. And I think that's kind of been the story of his career. So for Rosen, uh, I always wanted to see that year where he just just dominated from start to finish. And I know he doesn't have the greatest supporting cast, but. Uh, you know, I think that's kind of been the knock on him in our world. He's just never, from a production standpoint, uh, looked like that number one overall pick like a lot of people projected for him. Um, do you think that either or both of these guys 
are going to be good NFL quarterbacks, or do you think that you'd be very, very wary of them? Darnold has given me a little bit of, you know, a little bit of doubt this season. I still ultimately believe in him. You know, he's the things that he was showing last year, and he still shows it this year on tape too, the way he works the middle of the field and has this great feel for zone coverage and anticipation. He was doing that last year as a redshirt freshman. You just don't see that. I'll almost defer to Jameis Winston's early in his career where Jameis's redshirt freshman year was miles ahead of his sophomore year. And I, I kind of deferred back to his redshirt freshman year and said, there's the potential. I'll do that with Donald. I do think there's a good NFL future there. With Rosen, I think there's a lot of boomer bust, not only to his game throw for throw, but at the next level. I think there's, uh, there's still question marks because I don't think he's lived up to his potential. And uh, we still have to sort out what the off field is like with, for him. And uh, it's all rumors and hearsay at this point. But um, look, I think they both have a good chance to have an NFL future. But uh, right now, both guys, uh, a roller coaster ride so far through college. So as of right now, you have uh, uh, you you right now have Baker Mayfield of Oklahoma as your number one quarterback. Give me your quick view of him. Even though he's he he doesn't he's not that statuesque quarterback that that a lot of people like. But but give me your view of him. Right. So he doesn't have the perfect look. He's he's only listed at six two. He might be pushing six feet. Uh, so he's not tall enough, and he. Some people don't love his arm strength, but I just think the phrase I always come back to is I don't want to be the guy that doubts Baker Mayfield. He was a walk-on who exceeded expectations. He's been our, he was our top-graded guy last year, top-graded guy so far. This year was number three back in 2015. Every which way the guy just produces under pressure, against the blitz, uh, rolling out inside the pocket, outside the pocket. The guy knows how to make plays, tight coverage, down the field, doesn't matter. The guy just continues to make plays. Uh, so he might get overlooked by some people at the next level. I just think he has so much talent, and he's continued to always exceed expectations. I just don't want to be the guy that doubts him at the next level. Why are there so many people, especially entering this year and continuing during this year, who uh, continue to, I, I don't want to say be down on him, but are, are, are sort of, uh, you know, have low expectations for him in the NFL? I think I think the NFL or NFL analysts sometimes get caught up in what the the perfect what the perfect quarterback looks like. And look, I was a six ten pitcher, and I understand you know being six ten kind of kept my job for a while. And there's a lot of six five pitchers that get an extra look be- over a six foot guy. But uh, you know, and, and there's a re- there's not a lot of six foot quarterbacks at the next level. Uh, but all of them have special traits and special talent. It's Drew Brees, it's Russell Wilson. And I'm not saying Mayfield's even at their level necessarily, but uh, as far as what he's able to do to mitigate his height, to, uh, you know, to have, he has enough arm to throw off platform and to, to make NFL throws, uh, I think he can overcome the look issue. I think some people automatically assume because he's not that tall, he doesn't have a great arm. But you can watch him last year against Baylor. He's. He almost looks like he's flipping the ball like a shortstop, 45 yards down the air, uh, hitting a guy in stride. He's zipping the ball 60-plus yards down the field when he needs to. Uh, I think he has all the NFL tools. It, he just, it gets overlooked. It, it's a little bit of scheme in Oklahoma that gives him some easy looks. It's not always traditional the way he does it. He could stand to use a, you know, throw a few more on-time throws that look more NFL-ish. But uh, you know, it's easy to overlook him because of the size, the scheme, and uh, you know, sometimes he makes it look easy. You have Will Greer of West Virginia, redshirt junior, number two. 
give me your scouting report on Greer. Yeah, so Greer, he's really broken out this year. I don't know. There, there's a few things about his game that I think are, are certainly better for the college level. He, he's running the system at West Virginia that gives him a lot of options or a lot of opportunities to throw the ball down the field, and he's taken advantage of those. I think that's certainly helped this year. Um, he's had a, he's improved his accuracy since the last time we saw him as a redshirt freshman over at Florida in 2015. Uh, so he could still, you know, he still needs to work on just working through progressions, which West Virginia is not asking him to do a whole lot of. And he struggled a little bit at Florida, uh, working from one to two to three when he was in a bit more of a pro style system. But uh, you know, his ability to throw down the field has certainly uh, helped him stand out this year. And I don't know, he's, He's not a first-round projection or anything for us at this point, but from a pure production standpoint, he's done a really nice job of running that West Virginia system. So if he's not a first-round projection right now from your standpoint and you have him ranked your number two quarterback entering the draft, do you think that when you guys set your board at the end of the year that it's possible you're only going to have one quarterback in the first round? No, it's it's more so just trying to sort through right now. He, right now, he's just purely ranked off of what his what his college grade is, and uh, so we're just we're just grading right now pure college production. What are you asked to do? And then we go through a whole process of uh, kind of resorting the guys a little bit, using all of that information and that context, and saying, okay, how much of this stuff will translate to the NFL? And um, you know, Lamar Jackson, another guy. How much of what he does? will directly translate to the NFL versus which is uh, which stuff is uh, you know more of a college type of offense or what, what he's asked to do is more of a college type of uh, you know progression or quick read or easy read and try to sort those things out. So I think that's where we are with Greer at this point. You've got Lamar Jackson, number three, obviously the 19-year-old Heisman Trophy winner in 2016 has since turned 20. Um you have him a little bit higher than quite a few analysts do. Why? Look, I, I think from a pure comparison standpoint, I think he's really close to Michael Vick in two very specific areas. They both have a very good arm, but an incons- but inconsistent accuracy with the accuracy with the arm, and they both have elite athleticism. And I think if you had Michael Vick in the NFL today, you absolutely could build an offense around him. And I think that's where I am with Lamar. I mean, he can. He can work through reads. He can do uh, some quarterback-type stuff, and he'll make some tight-window throws. I know people are already trying to throw him to wide receiver just because he's such a good athlete, but he has enough arm. He can make tight-window throws over the middle of the field, and he's an electric athlete. I think all of that plays at the next level as a quarterback, uh, and he's continued to improve. The guy played without, without even using a playbook in high school, so he continues to improve. He continues to get better. Uh, he's taken great strides as a passer this year. and There's still room to grow. So uh, I think there's absolutely a, a first-round potential NFL future for Lamar. Uh, Mason Rudolph is your fourth-rated guy. Uh, give me your, uh, your view of him, Steve. Yeah, so he's been really productive now at, at Oklahoma State for multiple years. He throws the ball outside the numbers, maybe as well as any quarterback I've seen the last couple of years as far as just pure timing and accuracy, throwing the deep out, the deep comeback. He's just outstanding at that. He'll throw the deep ball pretty well. He's got this uh, very favorable system. He's got some great wide receivers, and a lot of times he gets away with some, with some jump balls. They'll just go up and get it and, and make him look good and make him look good statistically. But uh, I think he has the ability to, to make the throws up the seam, outside the numbers. He's got touch. Uh, the question for him is where that – ultimate upside is he doesn't have a cannon for an arm for this 
for this big quarterback who does look the NFL part. He doesn't have a cannon for an arm. So when those windows tighten up from the Big 12 to the NFL, I think there's a bit of a question as to whether or not he can handle that. Uh, and to that, and, uh, you know, that point makes him a bit of an enigma for us. Extremely productive, runs that system really well, has shown a lot of things you want to see at the next level. I want to know about that arm and the tight window throws. And, you know, if he can continue to improve in that area, uh, another first-round potential guy, I think, in our, and, uh, the way we look at him. Closing out your top five is Ryan Finley, who uh, a lot of people who listen to this podcast probably have not heard of. He's the quarterback at North Carolina State. He transferred from Boise after two years there. And he's an interesting candidate because he is that – the really big guy is a little bit thin. He's uh, a little bit light, but he's six four. And uh, what strikes me about him, and I've only seen him a little bit, Steve. I watched a little bit of their game against Notre Dame. Very accurate passer, um, yep. even though that wasn't his best game. But he's a very accurate passer, and I think he's one of those guys who scouts are going to maybe not fall in love with, but they're going to start to like the more they look at him. Yes, uh, coming into that Notre Dame game, second in our adjusted completion percentage number. Uh, he reminds me a little bit of Nathan Peterman and Peterman's rise last year, even though Peterman landed in the fifth round. There were a lot of rumors. Uh, the pick quarterback last year, he goes to the senior bowl and looks really good. And uh, there were rumors that he might go up as high as the second round. I feel like Finley could have a little bit of that to his game. Six five again, doesn't have a cannon for an arm, but he's a good decision maker, runs that NC State offense really well. And uh, the accuracy certainly has continued to improve year over year. So I think that's where Finley ultimately lands. A Notre Dame game from a grade standpoint knocked him down just a little bit. But, um, again, I think there's enough there that he's going to you know, do well in the offseason process. And uh, there will definitely be some people that like him throughout the process. Steve, which quarterback in the 2018 draft is going to have the best NFL career? Oh, man, I, I told you I don't want to bet against Baker Mayfield. I, I, I think, I think Baker ultimately, you know, he's, he's not a perfect prospect by any means, but the guy just ticks every box from a pure production standpoint. He has dominated our system on a throw for throw basis. Uh, I want to put Baker's name up there. And, and even though Sam Darnold is not grading well for us at all this season, I do think the stuff that he showed as a redshirt freshman, uh, you just, you don't see from a lot of these other guys in the class, NFL type throws, NFL type anticipation, he still has a lot of things to iron out, including getting out of the slump that he's in, but I wouldn't be surprised if, if Darnold is able to, uh, to raise his game. He's still young and still has a lot of room uh, to grow, but just shows some things that a lot of these guys just don't have. So I, I take it you probably would disagree with Trent Dilfer, who told me recently that this could be a quarterback class, uh, a quarterback draft in 2018. Could. Uh, as good as 1984, you, you're not altogether buying that right now. I buy the could. I, I, I love Trent. I think I think Trent talked to him about quarterbacks all the time. I think he's got a fantastic view. I think that's what we're dealing with, though. It's a bunch of could. You know, Sam Darnold, I even mentioned could, and Josh Rosen could, and Josh Allen from Wyoming has an, a Cam Newton. People have compared him to Cam Newton from a pure velocity standpoint. He might have that. He's as a cannon, and he's unbelievably athletic. He has just taken a major step back this year. There's a lot of could and, and maybe in this class, so I want to see more consistency there. But uh, I see the potential, but it's been overall, I'd say, a disappointing year from these guys. Steve, listen, I really appreciate you taking time and educating uh, my listeners on the quarterback crop. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime. Thank you. 
Thanks to my guests, Don Van Natta of ESPN and Steve Palazzolo of Pro Football Focus. If you enjoyed these conversations, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes in the MMQB series, such as my conversations with Tom Brady, Roger Goodell, and Bruce Arians. You can find these on the MMQB.com, on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Don't forget to leave a review while you're there. You can also hear the MMQB podcast with Peter King on Sirius XM Radio every Saturday morning at 7 Eastern on Mad Dog Sports Radio, Sirius XM Channel 82. Thanks to the fine folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And thanks, of course, to my sponsors, ZipRecruiter, State Farm, and The Home Depot. Please support them the way they support this podcast. And I'll see you next week.